Hey, it's Mark. At last month's JP Morgan Healthcare Conference, there was a notable shift among those biopharma company CEOs who presented toward navigating what promises to be a capital-constrained environment over the next several years. Digital health and telehealth companies were certainly no exception, as most spoke about acclimating to what is a tougher funding environment rather than touting how much money they've been able to raise. Jack spoke with Scott Schneider, Chief Digital Officer at Eversana, for his observations from the conference. And in other news, this week, Japanese pharma company Azai gave an operational update on how the early launch of Alzheimer's drug Lakembi is going. We'll talk about that and whether Lakembi, which represents the first really high-profile launch in the U.S. since a new drug pricing law was signed into law last summer, could set a precedent for drug maker transparency around value communications. And Lesh is here with a health policy update. Hey Mark, today I'm going to dive into a topic that's been pretty controversial recently, gain-of-function research and what exactly that means, plus a new report from the Government Accountability Office on how the federal government can strengthen oversight over this type of research. And Jack, what's on tap for the Social Media Minute? Yeah, Mark, this week we'll be discussing the recent controversy surrounding YouTuber Mr. Beast, his recent video titled 1,000 Blind People See for the First Time, and the polarizing response that ensued. I'm Mark Iskowitz, Editor-at-Large, and welcome to the MMM Podcast, medical marketing and media's show about healthcare marketing writ large. So, as I mentioned, the prevalent theme at last month's J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference out in San Francisco at least among the pharma and biotech companies that presented, seem to be how those companies are preparing for a coming macroeconomic storm. That includes a looming recession, a $200 billion patent cliff on drugs, and a falling stock market that has reset biotech valuations and kept much of pharma's firepower to do deals on the sidelines. All of which marked a shift for a conference that's normally abuzz with M&A pronouncements. Jack, you spoke with Everson and Scott Snyder about how things are playing out for digital therapeutics in this capital-constrained environment. What was his takeaway? Yeah, Mark, it was interesting to talk to Scott because he was really talking about how going to the conference for the first time since 2019, there was really a shift in terms of how people are viewing their deal-making opportunities, certainly how he's looking at it from the digital therapeutic side and kind of looking at what innovation the post-COVID world looks like. So it's interesting to see how he's really looking at the opportunities there, how data plays a role in evolving digital therapeutics and how they're playing out as standalones and as companions to brick-and-mortar medicines. Probably no surprise, capital constrained environment, uh, which I think uh, does a couple of things, right? I mean, one is it certainly makes people um, think about carefully which innovations you're going to invest in. So you can't do everything. I think in terms of the emerging uh, companies that are trying to bring things to market, maybe a little bit tougher headwinds, but maybe also the quality is going to rise to the top. I think for larger companies, a lot of those digital innovations we talked about, it's not just about improving the experience, it's about being more efficient. So if I can get my patients to self-serve more easily, or if I can get um, HCPs and physicians to get to the content they want by themselves instead of having to deploy a field rep uh, to go do that, maybe it changes my model, it's good for them, and it also allows us to operate more efficiently. How can I use data to be more targeted in, uh, in how I deploy my resources, whether it's marketing, sales, patient services, and same kind of thing. So a lot of focus on efficiency. Uh, how can I do more with less? But I also think there's an opportunity here to think about 
how does digital and data play a role in in really evolving how we think about delivering um, therapeutics? And I think digital therapeutics have been talked about a lot. I think they're starting to take root, um, not just as standalone uh, med- medicines, if you will, but also as complements to um, the drugs and therapies that are already out there. And so I, I think there was a decent amount of energy around that track uh, as well that I saw. And I guess the last thing I saw is a lot of focus on partnerships and cooperation. No one company can solve all these problems by themselves, whether it's delivering the comprehensive experience around the patient or bringing together data assets to go solve really hard problems. So those are a couple of themes I saw. In other news, we've seen Japanese pharma firm Azai be very proactive on pricing for its new Alzheimer's med Lakembi. The drug maker sought to continue that transparency trend yesterday when giving an operational update on the product's initial launch. And I just wanted to touch on that. Um, the initial launch has been, quote unquote, smooth and very much on track, reported Ivan Chung, Azai SVP for a global Alzheimer's disease and president of the Americas region uh, during a quarterly earnings presentation on Monday. And as proof, he uh, pointed to a trio of firsts, uh, beginning with the drug's initial recorded sales on January 18. Uh, five days later, uh, the company saw the first prescription for Lakembi written and followed by the first patient infusion, which took place last Friday on February 3rd. And uh, you know those prescriptions and infusions were for patients who met the criteria for receiving free drug under Azai's prescription assistance program or those paying cash. And of course, the company is still operating under the uh, national coverage determination for uh, Medicaid coverage by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which uh, incidentally covers 85% of the likely that can be patient population. And it remains inactive discussions with CMS as well as other payers like the VA and, and commercial insurers. So um, as it stands, Medicare access under that national coverage determination is limited to patients who are enrolled in clinical trials. And that policy, uh, which restri- really restricts uptake of the drug, uh, is what spelled the undoing of Lakembi's predecessor, Aduhelm, which was marketed, of course, by Biogen until it was forced to lay off its sales force and pull back on other commercial activities. So while it appears that Lakembi's off to a good start, most analysts agree that the product's long-term viability depends on receiving full or traditional approval from the FDA, and AZI filed for that approval on the same day that it received the accelerated green light. And Mark, just to jump in there for a second, you wrote a story about that today for the site, right? Yes, and nearly concurrent with an accelerated approval on January 6th, um, AZI listed the drug for $26,500 per year for a patient of average weight, despite the company's having estimated Lakembi's societal value to be $37,600 annually per patient. And here's Ivan Chung explaining more behind that rationale. We estimated the societal value of Lakembi in the United States to be $37,600 per year per patient. And we priced Lakembi at $26,500 per year for a patient of average weight. And this number will further go down significantly during the maintenance dosing regimen of less frequent dosing. Over 10 years, the gradual adoption of Lakembi at this pricing approach could give back about 60% of the potential positive social impact of several tens of billion dollars to the U.S. society, including patients, families, caregivers, healthcare providers, and payers. On the other hand, the remaining 40% to be accrued by employees and shareholders will be reinvested 
into further research and development to create new AD therapies and new ecosystems for inclusive AD communities. But the point that I didn't make in my story, which went live Tuesday, is that perhaps it's symbolic that Lakembi, which represents the first really high-profile launch in the U.S. since a drug pricing law was signed into law last summer, namely the Inflation Reduction Act, which empowers Medicare to negotiate the prices of some high-priced drugs, came out of the gate with this level of transparency. My thought is that this could set a precedent for other drug makers and their own value communications going forward. And whether it does is something that we'll keep an eye on. Health Policy Update with Lesha Bouchak. There's been a lot of controversy in recent years over something called gain-of-function research. The term has been thrown around in the media and among lawmakers in Congress amid the highly politicized debate over the origin of the COVID-19 virus, but it's often used incorrectly. Now, a new report from the GAO, a federal watchdog agency, wants to clarify exactly what it means, but also aims to point out ways the government could improve its oversight over this type of research. In short, gain-of-function is an umbrella term for a wide range of research, much of which is considered useful by scientists to better understand how viruses work and mutate, and how we can better detect and predict them. Here's Mary Denigan-McCauley, Director of Public Health at the GAO. Gain-of-function really covers a very broad body of research. And the part that's worrisome is one small, specific example um, it is, sorry, one type of research is enhanced potential pandemic pathogens. So that's just one aspect. Gain-of-function can have very positive. So for example, we change the function of how a pathogen works in order to boost vaccines um, production. So there are positive aspects aspects of gain of function. So importantly, it's just one small aspect of gain of function that we're very worried about. That very small part of gain of function research that could be potentially risky, known as enhanced potential pandemic pathogens, is what the federal government needs to strengthen its oversight on, the GAO report found. What we found is that This oversight was not always as transparent as we'd like it to be. We also found that there were gaps in their ability to oversee the type of work that could be done specifically related to emerging pandemic pathogens. We don't always know what's coming down the pike. and a lot of the oversight are, um, is aimed really at federally funded research. And so we don't have a good understanding of the broad of how much of this re- research is being conducted overall. The GEO listed several recommendations for federal agencies to take note of. They want the HHS to improve transparency and better clarify the definitions of gain of function research and for the HHS to get a clearer picture of all of that type of research happening in the U.S., even in the private sector, to better monitor it. I'm Lesha Bouchak, senior reporter at MMM. Social media, Instagram, TikTok, TikTok, Twitter, YouTube, social media update. This is the part of the broadcast when we welcome Jack O'Brien to tell us what's trending on healthcare social media. Hey, Jack. Hey there, Mark. So a few days ago, Lesha wrote about Mr. Beast, the biggest YouTuber around, and his recent foray into healthcare controversy. Last week, Mr. Beast went viral for a healthcare-related stunt, paying for eye surgeries for low-income patients who had a form of curable blindness. As part of the package, Mr. Beast also gifted a child a $50,000 college fund check and someone else a Tesla. In the video, titled 1,000 Blind People See for the First Time, Mr. Beast pays for the eye procedure for people who suffered from blindness for most of their lives. 
He then films their reactions once they were recovered, with some crying of happiness as they look around the doctor's room for the first time. In some cases, Mr. Beast hands over an extra $10,000 in cash to the people. For context, this is very consistent with the content that Mr. Beast has been producing for years. Mr. Beast, also known as Jimmy Donaldson, has 130 million subscribers on YouTube and is one of the highest paid content creators on the platform, raking in around $54 million in 2021. The reactions are heartwarming to be sure, but the most recent video led to a polarized response and triggered a far deeper conversation about the state of the U.S. healthcare system as a whole. Both Mr. Beast and his audience have questioned why it's so difficult for low-income people to access a relatively simple 10-minute procedure to be able to see. It's one of those things that we talked about before we decided to run the story. And Lesh, I'm, I'm curious to get your thoughts as well. But it's one of those things that we live in the richest country, arguably the richest time in the world. And yet this is something that a YouTuber, not even a government agency, state or federal, was able to provide. And yet it led to this really critical conversation online about who has access to health care, why and how. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, you know, for this story, I spoke with a few healthcare marketers to kind of get their take on this, including Amy Litt, who's a VP of communications at CMI Media Group. And, you know, she said that the video is actually sparking a pretty big conversation with their team. Um, and she said it's going to kind of lead to a lot of conversations down the road. And she said that she can, you know, really see how the idea can be problematic from this standpoint of is Mr. Beast doing this just as a publicity stunt? Um, you know, is he sort of using someone else's struggle or disability for personal gain or in social media talk clout? But, you know, at the same time, they were saying that, you know, they did see the value of the video and really sparking an even bigger question, which is why does this have to happen to begin with? Her exact words were kind of along the lines of why is basic healthcare something you have to win as a prize in America? Um, so it really ended up opening up some bigger questions for them. I did see that going around online, that kind of, uh, is it performative charity? I saw a lot of comparisons to the Squid Game, which obviously was huge on Netflix a couple of years ago. And this whole idea of whether it is kind of altruistic or, or narcissistic, I'm kind of curious, Mark, your thoughts in terms of how this all played out and what it means in the broader healthcare conversation. Yeah, thanks. I mean, I thought um, Lesha framed it beautifully in terms of is this altruism or, or narcissism. Um, and uh, number two, what what it says about our healthcare system, you know, that uh, we need to make uh, sweepstakes out of, you know, getting a simple eye care procedure uh, to, to cure something as significant as blindness. Uh, and, and what that says is a commentary on our healthcare system. Um, you know, I kind of viewed it more through the lens of, you know, this being a new form of high profile philanthropy, um, especially when you uh, look at it in the context of other traditional high profile philanthropists like your your Bill Gates trying to, you know, eradicate say polio virus from the world or Sergey Brin, you know, who we reported on earlier this year, you know, jumping into Parkinson's research. Um, and uh, you know, we've got to obviously uh, make room for this new form of, of philanthropy, good or bad, it's it's taking place. I, I took it in a positive light and uh, obviously better that it's happening than not. And I think that Mr. Beast is, um, I, I would come down on, on the side of altruism. And uh, I think that it bears watching. And also bears, you know, watching what those traditional philanthropists kind of do, whether this kind of sends them in, you know, hiring their own production teams to kind of get some more exposure to what they're doing rather than kind of working, twirling behind the scenes in this basic research apparatus, which, which also is obviously very important uh, and crucial uh, if, if we're going to have new, new drugs uh, for, for all the, the treatments that we, we mentioned. 
For what it's worth, I mean, if if you're coming down the side of this was something that he did out of the goodness of his own heart and he wasn't trying to monetize it or or make it some sort of performative effort, he did respond on Twitter to the criticism that was coming out of the video asking why the government doesn't do more in terms of providing, you know, in this case, very basic healthcare procedures that can help people get back into the workforce and live their best life. How he didn't expect the video to do as well as it did, whether or not you believe that at face value, I think it just comes down to, you know, kind of a subjective view. And his own interpretation of how people are viewing the situation. He had tweeted out um, people on Twitter saying rich people should help others with money. And he says me, okay, I'll use my money to help people. And I promise to give it all, all of my money away before I die every single penny. And then it says Twitter, Mr. Beast bad. So I think he even kind of leans into the fact that like, no matter it's a damn if I do damn if I don't, you know, how can I help in this situation? I've helped a thousand people be cured of blindness, but People are still going to yell at me about online, which. Right. We, we don't see that problem. You know, Warren Buffett having that problem. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't have quite, a, quite the uh, YouTube presence, uh, but it, it's, it's emblematic of this new form of philanthropy. And uh, it's, it's great that it's got us kind of grappling with, with that question, um, you know, what, what his intentions are. I uh, maintain that, uh, you know, what I've gathered from my kids, <laughs> that uh, he, he is a good guy, his, his, his um, intentions are good. But, you know, you can't deny that uh, he's, he's making a living, you know, through, through his video views. So that plays into it as well. But it's certainly something that uh, we'll keep an eye on going forward. Absolutely. Although I would love to see Warren Buffett count to 100,000 like Mr. Beast did. I think that would make some, <laughs> for some very very entertaining content. Absolutely. He's got a lot of work to do on yeah. that front. <laughs> That's it for this week. If you like this episode, please give it a thumbs up. Better yet, subscribe on your podcasting platform of choice and help others discover the show. The MMNM Podcast is produced by Bill Fitzpatrick, Deborah Stahl, Bradley Weems, and Gordon Failer. Our theme music is by Sizzy M. Sohn. We're out every week. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.